So how did your family or parents feel about therapy? Yeah, so I have always suffered with anxiety. And there was a period in my life about 10 years ago that I was getting panic attacks every yeah. single day, multiple times a day. And I don't know if you know what a panic attack is. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So uh, basically I was feeling like I was dying multiple times a day. And that went on for two years before I was just like, oh my God. Yeah. It was terrible. like, I couldn't go to the store. I mm -hmm. really couldn't leave my house or do anything that a normal 20 year old would do. <laughs> and so I was just like, something has to change. So I ended up booking an appointment to go see a therapist through my doctor. And um, went to therapy. After it was done, I get this phone call with, from my parents. And apparently because it was through my doctor, they had notified them that I made an appointment with <laughs> And so they just call me and they're just like, oh my God, why are you going to therapy? What's what wrong? did we do wrong like, in your childhood? You're not crazy. You don't need to go to therapy. What? And I was just like, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and so I was just like, oh my God, I like, I ended up taking them off of my like call list that day, <laughs> but yeah. And I like, I continue to go to, th to therapy. Um, I it, like outside of them, I found that, mm -hmm. um, alternative forms of therapy, like hypnotherapy worked for me better. And I think like my parents through knowing me and knowing like, how much I rebel against tradition. Now, whenever I say anything like alternative, yeah. they're just, they just are like, oh, that's just her. <laughs> but in the beginning, it was a big struggle for them to accept that I was going to therapy. Absolutely. And also I found like accepting what the therapist says and you start to do, right? Like mm -hmm. also can be received strangely. And I see this from experience. Um, and maybe this is just me and you could be like, no, you're alone in that, Lahari. <laughs> um, but I noticed that step one is getting the buy-in that and the comfort with them with you even going to therapy, right? So that's one step out of the way. But then step two is them getting comfortable with this other party in your life who's helping you think through Things that are very intimate, perhaps involving a lot of your family secrets and traumas, and then you shifting direction because of that. So I think, yeah. for example, my mom, she and I are very close, and she was a little protective initially of like, there's yeah. this other woman who's telling you how to basically like live your life, right? Like, not that they're possessing you like Damien and the Omen, but like, there is a sense of they inform things that you might do differently. You might be starting to show up differently. So there was a bit skepticism and I didn't realize like I did have to spend a lot of time with them having conversations about why even me going and practicing and changing and evolving with it was also very healthy. I, um, I would say it, my therapy is a lot different because it is hypnotherapy. It goes more into the subconscious. And so it's more so tapping into the deeper parts of yourself. And so I still had pushback from that, though, because it's like, oh, this is hypnosis. Are they like telling you what to think? Are they putting you under and like putting you under some kind of spell? And so it's just kind of like navigating that new age stuff um, as well, which is like pretty similar, I think. Yeah. And I understand why our parents as immigrants might not have had 
the resources, time, or even education to think about, okay, maybe therapy should be a cornerstone of my lifestyle or an option for me that's almost like equivalent to medicine. I really feel like I'm reaping the benefits of this type of awakening that our generation has had. However, um, I wonder sometimes how much more of the work would have been sort of done earlier had we have been a little bit more open with our families early on, if there weren't so many secrets or things that they kept from us in order to protect us. Again, very well-intentioned, but can still put ultimately us in a disadvantaged position. Yeah. Uh, So I think just from the culture of being, I, I, I think that this is seen in cultures across the board of, you know, young girls should be seen, not heard. And there's certain things that we don't talk about. And even my mom coming over to the U.S., um, I didn't really, I, or I never really heard that story until today. <laughs> I like called her up and I was just like, oh yeah, I'm doing a podcast and they might ask a question. <laughs> like, I, I need to hear your story. And like, it's, it is sad though, because I, I never knew. And, uh, after talking to her today, we talked for like three hours and I just got this like really rich story around it. And it reminds me of this standup that Hassan did, Hassan Minaj watched his standup, uh, homecoming. And so he mentions Mm -hmm. with first generation, um, people, it's like, we never really hear our parents' stories because they're like, oh, we're American now. Like, that's done. That's in the past. And they never really want to talk about it. And I was just like, oh my God, someone else is going through that too. (laughs) I was was just a me thing. But to me, that's why storytelling is so important because it bridges that gap between people where you're like, you're not alone. Um, I'm feeling the same thing and it's okay. It's okay to feel this way. And I really needed to hear that when I was growing up. And so I just, I, what I do is I help people tell those stories and help them get vulnerable enough to, they don't need to tell it to other people, but just to even feel okay telling it to themselves. <laughs> Cause sometimes we bury yeah. stories so deep within ourselves that we don't remember them. So, yeah, I, I find that like, you're sort of my storytelling soulmate. I feel like, <laughs> yes. um, I appreciate everything you said and I completely agree I feel like everyone has, and I'm going to sound like some PR like junkie, but like, I truly mean it. Everyone has an interesting story to tell. It's really how you put it. You can take even the most boring thing, like I had to change the tire of my car or I made eggs and make that into a really interesting story. I feel like the way you tell it. It's just framing a story. And I do want to kind of go back to that and revisit childhood a little bit because earlier you had mentioned too that conflict of finding that feeling of belonging, which is so important in both Black communities and Indian communities. And so obviously, I and I hope you didn't have a lonely childhood in general, but I hope you found belonging within a group of people. So what did that belonging look like for you at that point in, um, during your kind of elementary, high school, that time frame? Yeah, so I would say, uh, not to make you feel sad, <laughs> but I didn't 
really find belonging until, hmm, until I was maybe 15. Um, mm -hmm. I was always bullied really badly, even when I had friends. Um, anytime I was outside of them, I would just get bullied nonstop. <laughs> And so that was something I'm that- I'm so sorry. Yeah, it, it's something that I've had to work through of finding my voice. That's always been a big thing for me. Um, and why storytelling is so important to me <laughs> because my voice was yeah. always so diminished, just squashed down whenever I tried to say anything. But for me, I found my community with, um, I would say three or four really good friends in high school. And mm -hmm. they were also kind of the misfits. I was really a huge supporter of gay rights in high school. Mm -hmm. And coming from the South and Virginia, it was something that we had really opposing views with that. And gay people in my school, they had to stay in the closet. Like people mm. would out them if they were already out, um, they would basically just be awful to them. And so uh, I was part of the Gay Straight Alliance and I met my best friend through that. And uh, so we really like connected of just being like these ostr uh, ostracized kids. <laughs> and mm -hmm. uh, my two other friends, same thing. We were just like really nerdy, uh, played a lot of online games. I would say my community actually, when I was growing up was uh, online. It, a lot of it was gamers uh, where we would mm -hmm. meet through RPGs and um, I was just like, oh my God, these people want to talk to me? What is this? Like I go to school all day Aww. and everyone's just like, shut up. And then I come home yeah. and I have this community of online friends. Um, and you know, back then your parents were so afraid that you were talking to like crazy people that my parents would try and shut it down. Definitely. And I'm just like, no, <laughs> those are my only friends. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know what this means to me. Yeah. <laughs> My heart goes to child Rosh and even as an adult, like having to make sense of those feelings. Like sometimes it's such a relief to have grown up because you're like, don't have to deal with that bullshit anymore. Yeah. But I, I can only imagine it gave you greater empathy and sympathy for those who feel like they don't belong oh, and are totally. looking for that. Um, yeah, and I, I, those do make the best storytellers, in my opinion, when you can really uh, imagine yourself in people's shoes and feel that pain with that empathy, it helps to be able to share stories in general and connect with almost any type of want. Yeah, I would say when I was younger, obviously, it was a big struggle. Um, mm -hmm. And it's something that wasn't fun. Even when I went to college, I just always tried to fit in and I, I wanted to fit in so bad. I wanted friends and it put me into bad situations because I just wanted to do anything I could <laughs> to have friends. Yeah. Um, but through that, I think that I grew so much and I, I really came into just being myself, like truly myself and no one can shake that now. And I think if yeah. I didn't have those experiences, I wouldn't be this way. I love how you approach that with such a positive channeling of your experiences. 
that is something we talk a lot about in therapy even is like the narrative you write for yourself can be either positively impactful or negatively. And one of the things that I think a lot of us work on in our own respective ways are sometimes like, what are those negative stories that we're telling ourselves about ourselves? And when you repeat that over and over, you might believe it. So it's not as easy as like, okay, well, let's stop believing that narrative. Like there's a lot of practice that goes into rewiring. Literally, you have to rewire your neurological pathways and firing patterns. And like by doing that change, every you know moment that you intentionally do it over time like a muscle it'll become like an automatic reflex but it does take a lot of work um and you have to be willing to do it definitely there's i don't know if you've ever heard of the book called uh what you say when you talk to yourself by shad yeah. helmster i believe it's his name Mm-mm. but basically it's a positive self-talk book And it goes through how to rewire your brain from the negative self-talk into the positive. And Mm -hmm. when I was reading it the first time, I I read it in my early 20s, like when I first started going to therapy. And I was like, this is dumb. I'm not going to tell myself that I'm beautiful and like look in the mirror and smile. Like, (laughs) who wants to do that? (laughs) (laughs) But I like, I actually gave it a real effort and started doing it. And it's crazy, like, your brain just gets so used to negative self-talk. And it's not that you actually want to do it. It's just that it becomes so repetitive. It's like like a muscle um, that's used to doing an action when you're playing a sport. And it's just like... Exactly. Yeah, used to that um, negative self-talk. So when you start bringing in the positive self-talk, you'll find that it just gets easier and easier to incorporate that. And... Something that I do a lot um, is actually inner child work. And so I Mm -hmm. find that like speaking to your inner child is so important because pretty much everything that we're having difficulties with right now stems from our childhood and we just have never dealt with it. And so it just like starts off as this tiny little ball and then just goes bigger and bigger and bigger our whole lives. And manifest yeah. into different things like depression, anxiety, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. That makes sense, especially as I think about like our brain's desire, like cognitive psychology, like completely like what I remember from it. Um, so don't don't flatter myself that I'm like a expert, but our bo- brains are compelled to categorize information to make sense of the world. Um, like the concept of heuristics, like shortcuts your brain takes to be able to say like, okay, if this, then that. Um, And in making that shortcut, sometimes our answer becomes negative. Mm -hmm. Um, It's easier to say it won't work out than hope that it'll work, like hope that it'll work out and then be disappointed, right? Well, it's fear. Um, So to protect yourself. Yeah, exactly. Out of the fear, you'll just protect yourself by being like, oh, it's not going to work out. I won't get the job, for example. Um, but then when it happens, you actually though, like forget quickly to celebrate the positive and then you just focus again on the next time something bad happens. So it also can be very selective, right? Like Mm -hmm. you ignore all the positive things, but because it's like easier and more convenient to come up with an answer that's pessimistic, you might just keep giving yourself the negative self-talk. Yeah. I, I think fear is very conditioned and the easier response than going into something and saying like, well, what if, you know, because that's very scary. Like, what if there's so many different possibilities and sometimes our brain just automatically goes to like all the negative possibilities and it's like, oh my God, there's so many. (laughs) 
but if we can reframe to the positive it's like what what are we capable of you know that is a super powerful question like what are we capable of if you could free up your mind from that I think because coming full circle like back to a lot of the biases that inform sometimes our behavior and perception of others that we are not as familiar with and we talk about our own Black and Indian communities coming together, you can see sometimes a lot of basically like heuristics taking place where people kind of quickly categorize folks falsely without understanding them as a person first. So what I'm leading to is when you are hanging out with Indian friends, how do you sometimes address that bias or ignorance around the shared identity of being both Black and Indian? Um, I would say that something I've been trying to do is just whenever they talk about Indian things and they treat me as an other, I just like try and bring it back and just be like, oh yeah, I remember when my mom did that or like just try and remind them Mm -hmm. (laughs) instead of just addressing it head on. But that is uh, something that I need to do and I need to get more comfortable with addressing that because it is important for people to see Blindians as Black and Indian. There is a reaction, too, to Kamala Harris's VP nomination and subsequent being elected as one. And our Indian community showing up for it, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But it's also hard to ignore the fact that we've typically not celebrated this type of unity between Black and Indian cultures, right? Yeah. I felt some type of way about that (laughs) because it's like her whole life, she wasn't accepted as an Indian person. She was, in her words, she was always mostly seen as a Black woman. And now that she's VP, all of a sudden people, and because of this wokeness that we had happen in 2020, people are saying like, oh my God, she's black and Indian, make sure that you include it in the headline, which is great. It's awesome. But then it's also like, are you only saying that because she's VP? I I don't know. It made me feel very Yeah. Now it's a success story. So it's easy and convenient. Right. But like all those years, it it matters too. Right. Um, And I think that's to your, like, that's what I also feel like calling out in our culture. Yeah. I, I mean, I just, I don't know the right way to address that uh, because in one aspect, I do feel very proud of her being nominated, obviously. And I I do feel um, like her being recognized for being Black and Indian is something that was a long time coming. And Mm -hmm. as a Black and Indian woman, that feels good to me that people are recognizing her now, but then it's also like, where do I have a moment like that? Do all of the other Blindian like peasants kind of, like people that aren't VPs have a moment like that? (laughs) When, When do we fit into this where we're recognized for both, you know? Um, yeah. And I honestly don't have an answer. I, I feel like we're such a small population of people that normally these things get addressed when there's like a lot behind it, a lot of people pushing um, mm-hmm. for recognition. And so, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, I think that's a totally fair answer. 
I think we're, you know, fortunately or unfortunately seeing more progress on understanding each other, engaging with the conversation and actions with our South Asian and Black communities, um, maybe starting last year in 2020, especially with the George Floyd murder. I remember seeing kind of like that um, Instagram uprising, at least, of gr- accounts being created that like really quickly picked up a real a critical mass, um, including South Asians for Black Lives, the Blindian Project, et cetera. And especially with Kamala coming into the light, people did. This is why I talk about her so much is because she does represent such an interesting union between two communities that have so much more in common than they don't. But you see these gaps in understanding. And the way that you even see Black lives represented, for example, in Indian films is always a an in- insinuation of discrimination. For example, there's this movie that, oh my gosh, I remember that scene, Fashion with Priyanka Chopra. This kind of brought her into like the world of like critical appreciation of her um, acting. But in this movie, she's a model. She's super hot. Career takes off. Then she starts to spiral. And then the moment that she has that, oh shit, I really spiraled hard from all the drugs and partying that I've done is because she wakes up in the bed with a black man. And it's definitely like not subtle. Like it is very much there to show you that this is her lowest point. And it's incredibly offensive, right? Like, and these are the messages that like Indians yeah, are telling that's Indians. Awful. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. I mean, I, I know personally from growing up, it's like the darker you or the darker I was it wasn't a good thing. So it was always like, oh, make sure to bring an umbrella, like (laughs) make sure to really lather on the sunblock. Um, And yeah, if I ever like, to this day, it's something that I carry with me. It's like, I don't want to be out in the sun for too long. Um, And it's not necessarily now because I don't want to be darker. It's just like, that's something that was so instilled in me when I was younger that it's just like natural, like, oh, I don't want to be out in the sun. But then I think about like, why? And I'm like, oh, that's dumb. (laughs) But um, yeah, it's something that's very ingrained. And it just being Blindian and not seeing representation uh, of that side of my culture, it's just, it makes me feel even further away from it. Because it's like, oh, I'm not that light skinned. So am I even Indian enough? It like, it makes me question myself. What kills me is the hypocrisy. So we are minorities in the States and we can't bring that sympathy when we are dealing with our own dynamics as the Indian community. So what I mean by that is like when we, apparently there is, you know, so the history of this, like in recent history, 2016, 2017, there were some really brutal attacks that took place against students who were coming from African countries in Delhi. Mm-hmm. And when a politician was interviewed about it, he said, you know, why would we're not racist? We're not a racist country. Um, and if we were racist, why do we live amongst darker Indians like in South India? And first of all, I am South Indian, so I find that incredibly offensive. Like, thanks for doing me a favor, right? (laughs) Living, yeah, alongside my family. But then at the same time, it's also like not addressing, like there's just like so many things that are fucked up with that um, comment and like utter denial, right? Like that's just such a really great way to gaslight. Um, And so another thing that people use to defend is like 
oh, you know, in Hinduism, there's this mother Kali. Kali translates to black. So we celebrate this, actually. This is like something that's a part of our religion. Therefore, we're not racist. And so I bring this up because I feel like sometimes the justifications for this can be very difficult. Have you ever had these types of conversations with anyone outside of even the Indian community where you've had to sort of explain this phenomena that does occur between your two cultures? Oh, yeah. I I would say it doesn't happen that often when it does. um, It's normally someone that does have some ties to Indian culture um, that will ask me about it. But besides that, um, not not too many other people. And just like you, they just ask about my experience because it is a, a rare thing to have a black and an Indian person get together. So it's kind of like, sometimes I feel like this rare animal, like this mystical blending animal that like people are just like, oh, tell me more <laughs> because they're not used to seeing it. Uh, which, you know, it, it sometimes it does feel like othering exoticism, but mm-hmm. in other times it's just like, oh, they're just interested. They want to know more. Um, And just to go off of that um, Kali story that you spoke about, um, this isn't um, exactly similar, but it's a parallel of, there's a a festival that goes on in Sweden where Mm -hmm. they say that they're um, celebrating this God and, or this um, mystical folk character. And basically, it, it they are dressing in blackface, and they have on these mm. like little black afro things. But they like in their minds justify it because it's like, oh, we're just celebrating this folk character. Like <laughs> we're not really being racist. Um, mm. But yeah, it's very interesting how people justify things like that um, and then link it to them not being racist. <laughs> Yeah, I really wish people would just get over that. And um, like, I hate to break it, but I feel like everyone is racist, like in their own ways. And if we just acknowledged and normalized that term, we could probably start to like open up about, okay, what are the parts of me I need to examine? Yeah. Um, Yeah, I I would even say me, my family, like I see it a lot. So um, as long I I think most people just don't want to be seen as the bad guy. They're like, oh, I'd never like try and hurt you. So I can't be racist. But it's like racism is so much more than that. Yeah, it's sort of like, um, I think it's a positive attribution in psychology. Apparently, I'm on like a high horse with like psychology. So excuse me. No, but, um, <laughs> something. Yeah, I'm like really horny for psych tidbits yeah. today. But like, there's this like positive attribution piece of like whenever something if like, for example, if it's me, we're talking about if you do something where you come late to a meeting, I'll be like, mm-hmm. yeah, because Rosh is always late. Like, she just does it because she's like that. But if yeah. I'm late, I kind of make excuses for myself. I'm like, but, like, obviously I had a doctor's appointment, blah, 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 right? So you're kinder mm-hmm. on yourself. And I feel like that's how we kind of, like, classic of, like, what we do with racism is, like, we're like, but it's not because I'm racist. Yeah. If you, like, but that person's racist. Not me. Yeah, though. yeah. Like, you know? It's like the finger pointing thing. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm not, you are. <laughs> And therein lies, though, the secret of, like, people do know that being racist is a bad thing. Yeah. But so they that's why they avoid it. But no one wants to acknowledge that they might be guilty of it. Yeah. And, and there's also those forms of racism that 
aren't that apparent. And it's hard to explain to people that that exists. Um, Absolutely. I mean, growing up, like, and this is something that I've really worked on together with my parents is, and it sounds really silly, but when it came to wearing colors in like Indian clothes, I always gravitated towards green because green is my favorite color. Um, But there's a specific green shade that is shared with the Pakistani flag. And my parents would kind of feel like, oh, I don't know, like, do you want to wear that green? Not because they feel against it, but because they feel like other people will think that I'm Pakistani. And I was like, well, what is the harm if I look Pakistani in India? Because we were bringing it to the U.S. too, especially. So like Mm. a lot of this stuff, I'm like, this doesn't even, no one gives a fuck in America, guys. Like, um, and I'm like, (laughs) yeah. And like, also, so what if they think I'm Pakistani? They probably, first of all, just see me and they're like, you're a brown person. Right? I don't know from where. <laughs> like, <know> where. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it is something we've talked about a lot because that is not at all the way, like, I think that aligns with my values as my, myself and then my families of feeling like, oh, like we need to spread that type of message. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is something that unfortunately they've internalized from growing up, right? Like being, yeah. you know, especially growing up in like sort of the peak of some of the riots that took place between Hindus and Muslims. So mm-hmm. they're kind of, you know, I understand why maybe they might feel that way, but it is not, it is definitely a racist behavior that we talked about. Yeah. It's I, a lot of it just stems back from generational um, biases that are just instilled in us since we were younger and no one ever told us that they were wrong. <laughs> and so you like grow up and you say these things or um, you do these things like maybe a white person touching my hair, <laughs> you know, randomly. And like, they don't see anything wrong with it. And you tell them like, oh, that's racist. And they're just like, no, I just love your hair. But it's like, just accept the the criticism, take it in and like say, I'm going to change. That's so much better. You know, I think that says that you're racist and not racist more than saying that you're not racist. Absolutely agree. I think adopting a healthy sense of putting your ego aside and a healthy sense of humility could go a long way. And I mean, humility, not in the sense where someone compliments your shirt and you're like, oh, like, stop, you look pretty. Like, I mean, that could honestly go away and like just bring it into this space of it's okay to be wrong um, and help me understand what's the way that I could show up better. And so in that spirit, actually, my question is like how as South Asian counterparts can we show up more strongly for our black community um, especially since you have that perspective into both worlds I would say to just accept us that's really all I'm asking is for whenever I come into a space that has Indian people in it I just want to feel accepted I don't want to feel like an outsider Mm. or completely other Uh, Because you do feel that in the room. You do feel that like weirdness of like, oh, we can't talk about certain things because she's here. Um, So I would say that's one thing. And another thing is just not to judge us before you meet us, because I think that that happens a lot of where uh, not only Indian people, Mm -hmm. but a lot of races have um, a preconceived notion of a Black person. And that's what they go into the relationship um, thinking and it just like completely clouds whatever connection would have been there. And so for me, I have a story of like, um, I ended up 
coming back from, I don't know, a holiday somewhere. I, I think it was Thailand and I was really tired. <laughs> and so I ended up getting an Uber from the airport um, and the Uber driver, driver, he was being like really strange. He pulled up and then he like backed away a little bit, like reversed. And I was just like, okay. And I, like, I kept walking towards him and he was like shaking my his head as I walked towards him. So he ended up like popping his trunk. I put my stuff in his trunk, got in his car. And he was just like, uh, he said hi, but like in a really weird way. And I was just like, hey, how are you? Um, and then he all of a sudden perked up. And he's just like, interesting. And I just said, huh? And he was like, I, I just, I saw, you know, I, I'm not racist or anything, but I just saw you walking towards me as like a black woman. And one, I didn't expect you to sound that way. And two, I didn't expect you to be so nice. Like normally they aren't like that, but you, you're like pleasant. And I was just like. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. And it's like, just don't have that preconceived notion of like what we as a monolith are because people are so different, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is a, first of all, terrible. Sorry. I'm like trying to process. That's like an yeah. awful story. I was not expecting that. Um, I think he ended up getting fired from Uber cause I ended up calling them and I was just like, this was the most uncomfortable ride I've ever had. <laughs> I'm so glad you did that because yeah. wow, that experience, I'm really, again, very sorry that you had to go through that because that's so wrong. Um, and just like what a blatant physical demonstration of that discomfort, right? Um, it's not a compliment at that point right. when someone says like, oh, but I didn't think you're so nice. And you're like, okay, well still fuck you. Yeah. What you said earlier too, about being accepted in the Indian community, like, First of all, all the things that you said are very easy for people to do. I feel like it's just like basically the it's bare true. minimum. Yeah. My friend and I have a joke about like Aziz Ansari's stand up. Like I think it was like back in like the early 2000 teens. But he was like, you know, girls just want the guy like to be like the lowest standards, nice and clean. That's it's all true. you got to do. <laughs> and I'm like, that's like kind of like when it comes to like these types of like the uh, compassion for other cultures or identities. Yeah. It's like, just be like nice. nice. And maybe like, <laughs> yeah, like just like, it's not affecting you. This isn't your problem. Like yeah. just accept, you know? So, <laughs> so um, I yeah. feel like it, it's, it's not only acceptance, but like when you walk into an Indian space, like it is yours, right? That is mm -hmm. half of you. And in some ways, arguably it makes the whole of you because you are the halves, right? Of yeah. these two beautiful cultures. And so, um, it belongs to you just as much as it belongs to us. And I think that's where we get into a dangerous territory is like when people start to say like, oh, I get to dole this race card mm -hmm. um, f to people because they are this, right? Like yeah. uh, it doesn't need to be proven to anyone. Right. Yeah. I mean, that is all I'm asking for at this point. Just um, the same thing I asked for in guys. Nice and clean. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. <laughs>